Hey, good morning. How we doing? Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. We are in a study called How People Change. We are going to be in Romans 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming down the rows. They'll get a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, just key, please take this as our gift. Now, we've been in this study since Easter. We spent six or seven weeks going through this idea of how people change. We've been in Romans chapter 6. We're going to finish Romans chapter 8 today, and then this study is going to shift gears. It's going to get into some real practical areas that sometimes we struggle to have victory or to see change. Areas like contentment, areas like anxiety, areas like depression, areas like generosity, struggling with anger or bitterness. So this thing's about to take a change in direction, get very, very practical. I don't mean it to sound like it hasn't been practical in Romans. Actually, the reason we started here is you need to lay a foundation before you can get to the specific areas that we're going to study. Now, just a little bit of review to begin. When we started in Romans 6, the, the, the first part of that study was, shall I continue to sin that grace should abound? Well, that's not the case. Taylor preached a message on this idea that because of Jesus Christ, because of his victory over death, we actually have the power to change. Not just slightly modify our behavior, but to truly change. The series actually started a week before. Cal was in John 14 saying, before you can change, you got to figure out what your truth source is. And we live in a culture that says, you have your truth and I have my truth and we all have our perspective on what is real. And we looked at John 14 where it says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to decide what truth you're going to believe. I taught at the end of Romans 6 this idea that, that you've got to serve somebody. Are you going to serve righteousness? Are you going to continue to serve sin now that you've been saved? You've got to make a choice. In Romans 7, Cal kind of took the lead through Romans 7, and he started there saying, we've got to watch the two ditches on each side of the road of following Christ. One of the things you can go into is rebellion. We understand that. But others will run into what he called moralism or will run to legalism. Both are dangerous. Both are missing the mark and diminishing the work that Christ did on our behalf. And then at the end of Romans 7, he taught through this idea that this choice to follow Jesus, it's going to be a continual choice. It's not a one-time thing. That we're going to battle against our own desires. And we're going to have to make this choice monthly, weekly, daily, hourly. Chris picked up on that theme at the start of chapter 8, and he's talked about setting our minds on Christ, what that practically looked like. And then Cal last week was like, I want you to look at the marks that you know if God's actually working in your life, if he's changing you. The idea that you've got to endure difficult seasons, that your hope is steadfast, that it's anchored. So now I'm going to pick it up at the end of chapter 8, but that's kind of a review. Does any of that sound familiar to anybody who's been in this room? Like, don't, don't leave me hanging up here. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Okay, good. That was the review. Okay, notes away, Bibles away. Take out your, num your number two pencils, pop quiz. Okay, I, I, you guys said, like, I remember that. That's what's going on. This morning is simply, it's a final exam. Okay. I know our students are like, but school just ended. It's summer break. Hey, you're in summer school. Deal with it, okay? Today is a final exam. 
And here's what I'm going to tell you. This is a final exam that if we're really going to experience change in our lives, you can't fail it. It's just three questions from Romans 8. You'll see them in the text, 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 39. And listen, I don't know, I don't know what's happened in our world. When I was growing up, when I was a kid, I played sports. There were winners and losers. It wasn't participation medals. Everybody wasn't a winner. That doesn't make sense. That's not how I grew up. In school, we had these things called grades, like A, B, C, D, F. And, and what I know is if you got less than a 70% in the schools that I went to, that was failing. Okay, so as we look at three questions from the last eight verses in Romans 8, how many of them do you have to get right to have a passing grade? If you get two out of three, what percentage is that? Hello, nine o'clock service. I'm glad to see that you guys are, are awake. Okay, two out of three would be 67. You need a 70 to not fail. So we've got to be able to get all three of these questions right. Because I don't want to go into the particulars in some of the areas that a lot of us really struggle with. If we can't answer these questions, that would be a fail. So we're going to jump right into the text final exam, are you ready for change? Look at Romans 8, verse 31. It says this, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here, here's the first question that we have to be able to answer. Is God for me? Is God for me? And, and I would just confess, I think I'm like the rest of you. There have been times, there have been seasons, there have been circumstances in my life where this is a real question that I'm asking myself. Is God for me? When I'm discouraged, when I'm facing um, injustice or unfairness, when I'm going through difficult seasons, when I'm dealing with health issues or people in my family are dealing with health issues and I look around and I'm like, man, it doesn't feel in the moment like God is for me. Two bad ideas, I think, that sometimes if we're not careful, even as we preach here, there's two bad ideas we sometimes communicate to our church that I want to make sure they're two traps that sometimes we fall into. You'll hear around Harvest a lot this idea that blessing follows obedience. Do you guys agree with that? I, I, I believe that that's a biblical concept, that blessing follows obedience. But, but I don't want you to hear that and then in your mind, race to this idea. Here's the first point in your notes, that following Jesus is going to be an easy stroll. I, I don't think following Jesus is an easy stroll. In, in April, I was in um, Africa. I was in Kenya. We have two church plants in Africa, one in Lemuru outside Nairobi. And I was with the pastor there, James Onwamba. And, and it was Saturday night. He was going to preach the next morning. His church has really struggled, I think, like a lot of the African churches through covid they, they weren't able to get people to come because people were very scared they were going to get the illness and there wasn't a real great access to treatment if you got COVID during that season. So he's been almost rebuilding the church from scratch over the last year and a half. And he said, David, here's what makes it hard. It's not the COVID thing. It's all the other churches in Lemuru. All of those pastors are making promises that the Bible doesn't promise. They're saying, if you come to Jesus, God will heal your illnesses. He will settle all of your conflicts. He will make sure that you're rich. They preach a prosperity gospel and the people love it. 
And I'm here trying to be consistent with the word. And sometimes I've got to look at the passage and say, you know what? Sometimes for the follower of Jesus Christ, life has its difficulties. Wouldn't you agree with that? It's interesting, looking back at at the start of the church, when we planted the church in 2010, I was in my 40s, Chris and Cal, who we planted, the other pastors, they were in their 20s, and because of our age demographics, there were a lot of people that were coming to our church that were younger, and we planted in the fall of 2010, we went through 2010, 2011, 2012, and in our church, we never did a funeral. It was great. I'm looking at the other guys at the end of 2012. I'm saying, hey, listen, I'm thinking of taking out a billboard. Come to harvest. You'll never die. They they were like, no, I get what you're doing. That's going to be tacky. So we didn't do it, okay? There was greater wisdom in the room. But but what I will tell you is, the last 10 years, I've done a lot of tough funerals. I buried stillborns, infants men in my small group, friends, my mom. Life's difficult. And we don't get a hall pass on difficult circumstances, opposition, trials as a follower of Jesus Christ. And though we believe that blessing follows obedience, we know that we're also going to experience many of the difficulties that this broken world can throw at us. It's not my opinion. It's guaranteed because the Bible guarantees it. John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Other translations say in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I would trade peace with God and walking with the one who has overcome the world for a little bit of light, momentary affliction or trouble. But sometimes we... Doubt if God's with us because we're walking a path and we face opposition, trials, or struggles. And this question pops up, is God for me? Here's another thing. I think sometimes when we're preaching, we believe that Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that in every man's heart, there's what God calls the eternal longing. That we're longing to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. That there is a natural longing for things of eternal significance. And and last time I preached, back when I was preaching on Romans 6, and I was saying, hey, you've got to make a choice. One of the things that I asked you is I said, look at where the choices lead. And I had up on the screen a bunch of pictures of a bunch of very famous people, different people that have been very successful in music, in sports, in politics, in billionaires. I had a bunch of pictures of successful people, and I asked you, study them. Are these people really happy? Do they have the characteristics of happy people? In doing that, I do believe that all of us have an eternal longing, but I don't want to communicate that all unbelievers are miserable people. That's not true. Your proof? Yesterday, downtown Grand Haven. People are happy. They're on vacation. They're on the beach. Summer is here. Like, There's a lot of happy people running around Spring Lake and Grand Haven this weekend. And and sometimes we give this impression that if you're not saved, then you're always longing for something. There's a mask, you know, you just got this mask that you're happy, but it's not really true. That's not true. And my fear is that you're going to raise your kids saying, oh, all them unbelievers are miserable. And then they're going to go off to college and guess what they're going to find? Some really happy friends who don't believe the same things that they do, who are not as judgmental. And they're going to be like, wait a minute. I thought every, all these people are supposed to be miserable. How did they get so happy? 
Listen, unbelievers are not miserable people. Some of them are nicer than y'all, okay? <laughs> but, but what I would say is this. What I'm trying to point to when we talk about things like this is where is their happiness anchored? See, see that becomes the key thing. And, and I would argue all day that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can experience a greater level of happiness than the majority of people who don't follow Jesus who are walking around our community. And please let me explain. The, the people in our community, they're happy. They, they, they like being with friends. They like to enjoy good meals. They love the good weather. All of those things make them happy. They make me happy too. But, but as I'm experiencing those things, I can take what I anchor my joy to, to a deeper level, because I'm not just enjoying the family, I'm not just enjoying the friends, I'm not just enjoying the good feel, uh, food or whatever. I'm enjoying and I'm praising the God who allows me to enjoy those things because he gave me all good things. There's a different level of joy that I'm experiencing. It's not just in what I'm experiencing, it's who allows me to experience it. Does that make sense? And then the second thing, if you look at Paul, don't forget who's writing this thing, is God for me. Remember where Paul is. He's in prison, right? He's going to get out of prison really soon because they're going to kill him. He's on death row. He, he has the Roman guard against him. He has the Jews against him. He has the Gentiles against him. He has false teachers in his church. There is nothing about Paul's life that I would aspire to be or to model if I was living in Paul's day. And yet he's writing this passage from scripture and he's got this unquenchable joy because it's not grounded or it's not anchored in his circumstances. It's anchored in something far greater than his circumstances. It's interesting. If you were to look at a verse that is written to us in Romans 5, it says, the, or I'm sorry, in 1 Peter, it's talking about believers going through persecution. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, so the whole context is it's believers going through difficult circumstances. You were blessed and it goes on and it says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And what that passage is communicating is this. When believers go through difficult circumstances, their joy is not removed. They have an anchor that provides a joy in spite of their circumstances, and that's really compelling. It's a great testimony to the world. Be prepared in the midst of your difficulties to show that your hope is not diminished. How do you get that kind of joy? How do you get a, a, an outlook, a hope that isn't diminished by your circumstances that isn't just based on what you experience. I want you to see what Paul does in the text. He starts out and he says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says this, he said in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Confusing language to some extent, but I don't want you to miss what's being said in that verse because the argument that Paul's about to make, quite honestly, it's bonkers. And if you read the verse quick, you'll miss it. Here's what he's saying. If God was willing when Jesus went to the cross to let his own son have it, to not withhold anything, 
to pour his wrath out on his son. If God was willing to do that, then why would he withhold anything good from us? Follow the logic. Would God do less for believers after they are saved than he did for them before he was saved? Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved for us by his life. So Christ was willing to die for us while we were enemies. We learned in Romans 8 that we are now joint heirs with Christ. We are part of his family. Why would God do less for his family than he was willing to do for his enemies? If God was willing to demonstrate on the cross his love for us, why would we believe that he's against us now? That's the argument that Paul is making when he considers, is God really for us? His eyes go immediately back to the cross. And he goes, in light of the cross, in light of what God demonstrated, how in the world could I believe that he is not for us? And again, we might feel different things in different seasons going through different circumstances but what we feel does not define what is real what defines what is real is what God's word says Jesus is our truth source if God is for us who can be against us that's question one how we doing okay here's question two verse 33 who shall bring a charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is to condemn? So, so the question that's being asked, the first one being, is God for me? Here's the second one. Am I still on trial? Am I still on trial? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn? Well, I, I'm just going to tell you, I look around. There's a lot of critics. There's a ton of critics. There's a ton of people that are constantly condemning let me give you a list. One of, one of them is the devil. It's the enemy. It's at a spiritual warfare level. In Revelation 12.10, we read this. The authority of Christ has come. And then it says, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan, the devil, that, that word in the Greek is actually uh, diabolus. And it's a judicial term referring to an accuser or slanderer. So constantly on a spiritual level, the devil is hurling accusations day and night against the followers of Jesus. There's an accusation. There's a critic. Here, here's a, another critic that we have. Often it's the law. We read in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If we're not careful when we look at the law, which represents God's righteousness and holiness, we automatically recognize that we constantly fall short and we can begin to critique. The law actually becomes a judge against us that we can't be saved in our own righteousness. So we've got the devil or the enemy. We've got the law. Here, here's some other critics, like other people. Have you ever noticed that? Like, like people like to be critics. It never stops. I, I was thinking back, like when I was a kid going to school, I was surrounded by critics. My coach criticized me. My teachers criticized me. Other kids criticized me. Girls that I liked criticized me. Girls I didn't like criticized me. Everybody criticized me. That's kind of what growing up is all about, right? Th then I went into the professional career, and it was interesting. In, in, in my profession, I was criticized by investors, by partners, by lenders, by contractors. 
Critique, 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 critique. I got so tired of critique, I decided I'm done with this. I'm just going to become a pastor. Just make it end. And um, I, I might have been mistaken there. It, it, it's funny. I was getting ready to preach last night, and I was in the green room. I was wearing this same outfit, and one of the guys walks in. He goes, oh, I didn't know it was Billy Bu- or, or uh, Jimmy Buffett weekend. Making fun of my shirt. I'm like, really? You just became part of the sermon. Touche. A couple weeks ago, Cal was preaching. And uh, during the course of his message, I don't even remember what it was, but he said something really nice about my wife, Kristen. And after the message, Kristen went up and says, hey, that was really kind. Thank you for the kind words that you said during your sermon. And Cal said, well, one of the things that I've learned is what our people really get fired up about is when I say nice things about you or make fun of dad. Those are the two things that kind of really get them going. So, so I understand there, there's always going to be critics. There's going to be critics that are other people. But here's the truth. If I were honest, the, the critic that I can't get to shut up, the one that gives me the most trouble is myself. I, I know myself too well. I, I, I know where I fall short. I know where the hypocrisy is. And what happens is I, I, I'm constantly confronted with the reality of who I am in spite of the masks that I might choose to wear. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Man, I think of a lot of people. It's interesting. Look at what Paul says. Look where he goes to silence the critics. Verse 34. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Paul, in defending himself against his critics, his defense has nothing to do with himself. He only points to Jesus. He says, attack me as you will. My defender, my intercessor is Jesus. The life death and resurrection of Jesus has silenced every accuser and every critic against me, even myself. You're like, well, what about the the devil? What about the enemy? He's accusing day and night. It's worthless. He's already defeated. Gavel's dropped. It's done. What about the law? It's interesting. Jesus stands as an intercessor. 1 John 3, 1 will say, when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is our judge. So so I want you to understand this because you've always got this picture kind of of a courtroom in the New Testament that Jesus comes in our defense. And what I don't want you to miss is this. If you were in court today, do you know that you don't need a lawyer to throw yourself on the mercy of the court? You don't need a lawyer to plead guilty. You just go before the judge and plead guilty. You can throw yourself on the mercy of the court. What you need a lawyer for is to make a defense. And a lawyer needs to be an expert in the law. And when Jesus stands before a holy God advocating or being an intercessor on our behalf, I want you to understand he's arguing based on the law. He is making an argument based on the law. And here's the crazy thing, the law is now for us. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the law stood and hung over our heads that we weren't measuring up. But when Jesus, our intercessor, our advocate, our lawyer, argues on our behalf, he's saying, listen, the law demands justice. Justice on our behalf means acquittal because Jesus paid the full price for our sin. The law is actually on our side. But quite honestly, it's even way better than that. In even saying what I just said, I don't want you to think that every time you sin, there's a new case opened up against you before God the Father. 
That's not the case. Note the tense on this. It says this, Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised. Your defense was already made. It was done. It was finished at the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he defeated death. And when it says that he is interceding for us so that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, it's not that he's arguing against every sin that we commit. commit. Our, his advocacy, his intercessing for us is based positionally on where he is. God doesn't forget what Jesus did on our behalf. He's seated right next to him. And Jesus positionally, because of where he sits, makes the argument, I freed them from the guilt of their sin. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You are not continually on trial. You've been set free. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared innocent because of what he has done on your behalf. You're not even in the courtroom anymore. We've got to get that if we're going to experience true change. Here's a third question that I want you to see. One other thing I would say there, this, this voice, this self-critique, this self-condemnation, I would just make, give you a reminder, maybe just a slight warning. When, when we continue to listen to that inner voice that critiques us, when we attempt to punish ourselves or atone for our own sins with self-condemnation, all we're doing is diminishing the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. We've got to know this. We're not on trial anymore. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, I just want you to notice the tense. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not that we will be more than conquerors. We are current, present tense. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Past tense. We are conquerors today because of what Christ did in the past. Paul once again is reflecting on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. And he is saying we are more than conquerors. And he's going to go on and say this in verse 37 and 38. I'm sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The third question is this. Will God still love me? In verse 38 it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life. That word sure in other translations, and I, and I actually like the other translations better on this word. It says, I am persuaded. I am convinced. Nobody can make an argument against the fact that I am sure, I am persuaded, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Are, are you guys persuaded on that? You're persuaded that God loves you in spite of you, that, that you are fully known by God and, and still fully loved. This unconditional covenant love that God has for us, it's a little foreign in our current culture, wouldn't you believe? Wouldn't you agree? It was interesting, I was doing just some quick research, and when I say research, I mean Googling. Um, I, I was Googling just some statistics on marriage. 70% of marriages in our country, before people are married, they decide to live together. Why is that the case? Well, they've got to decide uh, with a little bit more knowledge whether they want to actually love somebody. 
So, so let's live together for a season. We live in a world where love is a temporary commitment. People fall in and out of love. You listen to our music, our songs, it's all over them. It's, it's sad. The more we get to know each other, the more the mask or the facade begins to fail. We run the risk that the person that we thought loved us isn't going to love us anymore. So, so what we do is through the dating process or through the courting process, we, we put up masks. Ladies, you know we're on our best behavior when we're dating before we're married. You know that, right? You're not falling for this. We are intentionally tricking you to try to win. That's what we do. We're men, okay? But, but longer, will that love, will my spouse still love me? Statistics on marriage are frightening. Half of marriages end in divorce. The average length of marriage in our country is 8.2 years. 8.2 years. It's interesting. Of all marriages, just over one quarter, 26% of marriages will last 30 years. It gets worse. Fewer than 5% of all marriages last 50 years. I think that has less to do with divorce and more to do with death. But um, very few marriages stand the test of time. I tell you all of that because today's kind of a special day for Kristen and I. Today's our 40th wedding anniversary. And um, so, so only a quarter of marriages make it to 30 years. I couldn't find a stat for 40 years. Only 5% make it to 50. We're somewhere between a quarter and five. Okay, Here, here's a great stat. If you've been married 40 years, your chances of having a divorce are less than 1%. 0.9. Nine in a thousand. So I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> 40 years, I'm almost persuaded. So, so, so the question is, well, well, why am I persuaded that Kristen loves me? Well, here's one thing. I happened to be there when we got married. I heard her say, I do. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. My, my wife's pretty good at keeping her promises. I heard her make a promise. It's kind of persuaded me. Beyond just being there, I would argue that the last 40 years has persuaded me. Because over and over and over and over during the course of the last 40 years, Kristen has chosen to love me in spite of me. Through good days, bad days, easy seasons, difficult seasons. Kristen and I were married young. We got our pre-marriage counseling after we were married. So I don't know that it was really, it was marriage counseling. Let's just call it what it was, okay? But it was a lot of the pre-marriage stuff that I would highly recommend. Well, back then, there was this personality assessment or relational assessment. We took something called a Taylor-Johnson test. And it assessed our personalities, how we viewed ourselves, how we viewed our spouse. And it, it's interesting. I share this with permission. Kristen's test, just a couple months after we were married, it revealed something interesting. It, it was that she had a very, very high view of me and a very, very low view of herself. My test results agreed with hers. Um, <laughs> I also had a very high view of myself and not so high of her. Not great. Not great. 
I haven't always been as lovable as I appear to be now. I'm just going to tell you, there's, there's been difficult seasons across 40 years, but hey, I remember the commitment, I remember the promise, and I've seen that promise fulfilled over and over and over again. How's God at keeping his promises? He's not pretty good. He doesn't try his hardest. He's perfect. God always keeps his promises. And I could point to people in this room right now. Remember some of those difficult funerals that I've done? So often in the midst of those difficult funerals and those absolute tragedies within families, I'll hear people say, God's even faithful in this. God's even faithful through this. He's seen me through all seasons. What more does God have to do to prove that he will always love you in spite of you? That's our God. So three questions as a final exam. Is God for me? Am I still on trial? Will God still love me? God is for us. He's promised that he is. I'm no longer on trial. I'm forgiven. I've been set free. Jesus has absorbed God's wrath for my failures. I am no longer guilty under the law. And nothing will get in the way of God's love for me. The argument that Paul makes in the last verses of Romans 8 is this. If God is the creator, there's nothing in creation that will remove the creator's love for you. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. Nothing lesser than God could ever affect his love for us because he has told us, he has promised that he loves us. So so why is this an important exam? Why do we've got to get these three questions right? Because over the course of the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at things. And and here's the issue. Many in this room are going to struggle with anxiety. We struggle with anxiety. And in the midst of our struggle against anxiety, part of our anxiety is caused because we begin to doubt that God's really for us. That God really loves us. Some of us struggle with self-worth. We struggle with self-image. And at the root of that, in many cases, what you'll find is we believe that we're still on trial. And because we're still on trial, when we see ourselves fall short, we convince ourselves that God is in force, that he doesn't love us anymore. The, The root cause of so many of the things that we struggle with is a wrong perception of our standing before a holy God. And as we deal with this in the next few weeks, we have to be able to pass this exam if we're going to have any lasting change going forward. And by God's grace, that's what we're after. We're after people that really change. Would you agree? We got to be persuaded. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for this kind of mountaintop passage at the end of Romans 8. I thank you for the example of a man who from prison can declare with boldness, I've been set free. My God is for me. My God loves me. Nothing will change that. Father, you are a faithful God. Great is your faithfulness. Don't let us lose sight of that over trivial matters, over small difficulties in light of everything that you've already done for us and that you continue to do to demonstrate your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.